you want to prepare for a breach or incident response because when it happens, that's the moment where you're not supposed to be creative. So I'm always talking about Tom Cruise. He's saying, you don't think, just do. That's typically one of the moments where you don't want to start thinking and being creative about how are you going to answer. So one of the incidents that I happened to handle in the US and with Guido was actually really painful because it was a um, multinational, different countries, different CIOs, different CEOs, whatever. And nobody could really agree upon what they were supposed to do. And nobody really would, was taking you know, action or giving us clear answers. So I would say on the org part, if you have an incident, you're supposed to break open your safe and check basically the checklist that you're supposed to go through. And one of those has to be the chain of command. We need to know who's making the decisions. It's like one person is accountable. I don't want 50. I just want one person to be able to answer my questions. One person who's going to actually take the decision, make the decisions so that we can move forward and not waste time. Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Duby. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the HIP Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Duby. This week, we're throwing back to last year's Global HIP Conference in New York City. In this panel session that I moderated, incident response experts Ben Cowell of Accenture, Marty Mamjian of CDW, and Jeff Wickman and Guido Grillenmeyer of our own Sempris' Breach Protection and Response Team joined me to discuss lessons learned from remediating large-scale cyber incidents. It was a great discussion with insights from being in the war room itself during an incident. So it's an opportunity to get lessons without having to go through the trial by fire. And if you enjoy this session, there are plenty of other sessions to explore at hipconf.com. Be sure to follow hipconf.com for upcoming announcements about this year's conference. Thanks. Okay, great. Let's just kick it right off. Before this, we were talking about some of the things, some of the, the topics that uh, this team wanted to bring out for people to be aware of or things to emphasize. And I sort of lumped it under people's pro people process and technology. And as part of that, let's, let's first start by talking a little bit about preparation. I know that you know, many organizations, they got various degrees of preparation. There's the head in the sand, oh, it won't happen to me, all the way to the it's already happened to me. And I've learned the hard way to, to put some things together. And so let's talk about uh, the preparation aspect of it. Um, ben, you know, we talk about preparation and about it's not necessarily about the technology. It's about that organic organization and all the moving parts. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? A little bit. Uh, but not too long. You know, we'll give other guys a chance. All right. Um, one important thing on the, all the sessions you guys have been, have been attending for the past two days, we're always talking about being prepared for everything that we're doing, planning for stuff that we're, we're about to do, right? You don't, well, you, you want to prepare for a breach or, you know, incident response because when it happens, that's a moment where you're not supposed to be creative. So I'm always talking about Tom Cruise and, you know, he's saying, you don't think, just do. That's typically one of the moments where you don't want to start thinking and being creative about how are you going to answer. So there's the technical side, and I guess I'll leave that question 
to somebody else. But I'm more on the org side because one of the incidents that I happened to handle in the U.S. and with Guido was actually really painful because it was um, multinational, different countries, different CIOs, different CEOs, whatever. And nobody could really agree upon what they were supposed to do. And nobody really would, was taking you know, action or giving us clear answers. So I would say on the org part, if you have an incident, basically, as I always discuss with Sean, you're supposed to break open your safe and check basically the checklist that you're supposed to go through. And one of those has to be the chain of command. We need to know who's making the decisions. It's like one person is accountable. I don't want 50. I just want one person to be able to answer my questions. One person who's going to actually take the decision, make the decisions so that we can move forward and not waste time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I'm saying one, it's one plus a surrogate or whatever. But yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at least one, not 50. And that is one of the issues is different organizations with different countries. Think about it. If you have an incident, but it only affects the U.S., for example, but it's a French company, but only the U.S. side is affected. Is it the French company or the French group that's supposed to make, take the decisions? Or is it the U.S. CIO who's supposed to make the decisions? And that is things on the legal side that are really important. And that can make you, you know, waste quite a few days right there trying to figure out who's doing what. Uh, what I would add to that, and um, the gentleman prior speaking actually covered it a little bit, um, you can plan all day, you can do it internally, but get advice from experts who have gone through the fire. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a, uh, an incident, and when we talk to the client and say, well, where's your response plan? You get this piece of paper that's got crayons on it, drawing out what their network looks like, and it's very, very high level, and is not sufficient for truly handling an IR. So talk to someone from the outside world that actually has gone through an incident. Make sure you're getting all your bases covered. They're not going to know the details internally, but they can give you a lot of good advice on what really matters. I was saying don't have your plan on file share. Yeah. 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 <laughs> box, box works good. <laughs> um, so two things. To Ben's point, the first thing we do when we stand up incident response, I don't care if you're a 500 employee organization or one of our customers with 140,000 employees, walk through the door and ask who is in charge? Who is the decision maker? Is it legal? CEO, CF, doesn't matter. We need that person, right? We need to pretty much ask a question or give direction and get a yes or a no. That's how decisions are made. Um, the other most important thing, doing this for a very long time, we just experienced this last week with one of our customers, what you do matters in incident response. Thomas presented on the cyber insurance side. I can tell you 100% and I will die on the sword. There is no vendor that's going to walk into your environment and no incident response team, I don't care how good they are, that knows better than you do. When you go into recovery, post-detection and you know annihilating the threat, getting them off your network and all that stuff, no one's going to help you recover besides giving you a checklist. So what you do matters for incident response preparedness and the, documenting the right amount of information, not too little and not too much, and actually leveraging that during tabletop exercises and going a step further and testing it, right? Test it through your downtime plans and your processes. I really like the comment that Thomas made in the previous uh, talk and you've heard the clapping going on and in, even involve the cyber insurance during your tabletop ex uh, exercises, during the dry runs, yeah? It's like, 
makes absolutely sense because you need to know who to ask and uh, who to contact and actually who's the potentially um, uh, the, the person that's allowed to contact the cyber uh, security insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it goes much around understanding who can do what, but also um, preparation is not just who to uh, get for decision-making. Preparation is also to know your business, what do you need first back up and running again so that your business can continue. It won't be everything. Your business typically requires potentially 20% of the apps or even less, yeah, and pretty much that same percentage from your workforce. Which ones are they? Yeah, What are your critical roles, your critical apps and your critical roles? You need to know them. And of course, going back to the preparedness, that changes. Yeah, So that list of either people or application is a dynamic list and not something that you shove in a drawer and uh, pick out. I mean, Ben just, uh, um, you know, sort of hinted at and don't put your plans uh, on the file share. We've had, I've had the situation in a breach where, um, you know, some, something went wrong and, and that wasn't reachable, the, the DR plan, because uh, you couldn't authenticate anymore. In this case, it was just, just deleted uh, uh, users. But it doesn't matter. Uh, you have to have your plan available off-site one way or another, safe, whatever it is. Now the depend the dependency tree of a multi-layered animal that current IT is. Also, you know, in terms of the process and the technology, as I often say, but I don't think it's repeated enough. For example, ADFR is a great tool, but you don't get to actually pulling the trigger on ADFR until probably, you know, many hours or days of angst and research and insurance and everything before. Oh, and what's ADFR? Yeah, Active Directory Forest Recovery. There, I got the plug in. <clears throat> what about uh, what about isolation? Uh, the idea, you know, when 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 an incident is going on, I always like to use the phrase "everybody's running around with their hair on fire." What about uh, organizational or, or isolation so that stuff can get done? Thoughts about that? You better be really sure when you're going to isolate specific systems, applications, or whatever that you're not doing it for the sake of isolation because you're going to impact HR and payroll. And the faster you isolate, the faster you can recover. That's a golden rule, right? The faster I can isolate any of my impacted systems, user accounts, whatever, the faster I can go into recovery. At the same time, back to the point of cyber insurance, there is, when you go to make a claim with cyber insurance down the road, you need to understand when you isolated a system, what information do you need for forensics and what do you have to save? Most organizations, when we go into incident response, they say, hey, we're in isolation. We need help with recovery. It's like, okay, I need an image of your isolated systems. I need your logs. I got to get fingerprints. I got to do forensics and the chain of custody. It's like, oh, well, after isolation, we actually start re-imaging, right? One, that's critical. And two, do the app dependency mapping for your critical infrastructure. Ben spent an hour talking about that yesterday. That is critical to business continuity. I'm going to take it from a different angle, though. Uh, Isolation, when I, when I go into an incident, typically I would see the IT staff burned out. Um, and one of the first things I say is give them a break, let them alone, let them do their work, get them food, feed them, give them water, and let them rest. Um, my, my twist on the isolation is you know, be prepared to let your people do what they do best, but also give them the rest that they need. Because the last thing you want is someone who is sleep deprived, trying to make changes to a critical system and making it more of a disaster. 
So another fun fact about isolation, uh, this happened during COVID. So this is one of the incidents that I had with, uh, with Guido and it was in the US and of course I'm based in Europe and um, there was no way we could fly in and we decided to cut off you know, all the infrastructure but then everybody was working remotely, no one was on prem. And that's also one of the challenges is like isolation is good but you're cutting out most of your workforce. As you said, IT staff is overrun, um, not enough people. So it, it's really a limit of you know, how much you can do and what you're supposed to do. When, I, when I'm thinking about isolation, what I like to do, and this is what we were talking about yesterday, so bringing back AD is, of course, one of the most important things that you're supposed to do. But just keep in mind that AD doesn't run your bit. Well, AD is the backbone to your business. And as I said, it's like the, the cornerstone, your secu security posture. But AD doesn't run the apps. The apps rely on Active Directory. So if you're now restoring AD with ADFR, but for forensics needs, you actually need to keep those servers alive. So those servers that were ransomware, you need to keep them alive. That means you can't re-image the same servers. So you're probably going to re-image or rebuild your Active Directory somewhere else. Different VLAN, different IPs, different whatever. Do you really think your apps are going to work? All right, I, I got a few smiles. So one, one thing I want to add to that that's very specific, that this keeps happening and will continue. How many of you have network segmentation tools, macro and micro? How many of you have a plan to press a red button and shut off the server, the application, the data center in case of emergency? Great. When you do that, I can't get telemetry information from my EDR or ITDR tool to actually do incident response. Right? So you really have to stress test that on your critical applications to understand what's going to stay alive and keep running so you can do incident response. So, yeah, so you're saying basically the, 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 good guys, the good guys need the same network access that the bad guys need. Uh, and, and, I, and I guess that, that whole topic of isolation goes uh, in a technical way, network-wise, but also team-wise, um, because and sort of what, what uh, Jeff alluded to, um, the technical team needs to concentrate and do their work. At the same time, business leaders constantly want updates, want updates, want updates. Don't mix the two. Yeah, because you're just going to kill the technical team with uh, uh, disruptions uh, that they don't need. Yeah, choose a person that jumps between the teams. Yeah, sort of one that uh, delivers uh, the news and and you know asks the questions in the one team, delivers uh, the updates in the other team. That's another important uh, element of isolation on the technical side. It is important, even if it is a different network, uh, to bring your critical systems back up and then know what to do to make them work in that other network. But that's part of the preparation, yeah? And that's exactly what you learn in the DR testing and in the DR prep to be able to recover elsewhere. Actually, quite, uh, uh, quite an obvious choice is not to recover on-prem, but be in the cloud, yeah? It's, it's okay to spend those extra thousands of dollars on cloud resources in that moment, even though you might not want to do that on a, on a daily basis for all of your on-prem uh, systems. But that's certainly getting you up uh, and running quicker, potentially, than needing to deploy new hardware. Where is that coming from? Uh, in, in the data center. Yeah. So isolation has many aspects to it. I'll actually bounce back on that one. So I was talking about that yesterday. So if you guys are doing projects right now, I'm doing a rollout for a retail company and we're trying to buy servers throughout the world. Lead time on some of those HP servers are six months to one year in Asia. So of course, if you're trying to get you know more firepower in your data centers because you're trying to recover from whatever, yeah, if you have to wait six months for it, you probably won't be there anymore. So the smart thing to do, and Guido was talking about this, and I did this for another customer, another 80,000 person customer, is... 
um, we basically created the bubbles in the cloud. So what I talked about bubbles, it's basically like empty spaces, but where we, we, we knew that we, if we had an incident, we would recover there. So we did a, a bubble for tier zero and different bubbles for all the applications. When there's an incident, basically the tier zero team will focus on restoring Active Directory in that separate tier, tier zero bubble. And the tier one teams will actually handle the apps and they know what they, they're supposed to do. They're supposed to bring those apps back in their own bubbles. And because we prepared this in advance, all the network interconnections are already created. So you're not thinking about network flows or whatever because we all know that it's a real pain in the butt. So if you do that in advance, even though that might not be the target and your, your, you know, your company probably doesn't want to be full cloud or maybe doesn't want to, but it's like an in-between where you can come back really quickly. You can leave all the reference for forensics on-prem and your business can still continue. So it's like a BCP mode. That's a fast recovery and that allows you to work. And another fun fact, so about isolation, and this was another thing that we did with Guido is when we had our incident, so as I said, it was in the US, we were not allowed to travel. And when they decided to shut down the connections, basically how could we investigate and understand what was wrong with AD? So the thing that we did that was, I, th I think was really smart. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I think it was really, it was really good is, we brought in, so Sam Paris, so I was with, with Guido, we brought in ADFR, we actually backed up all the production environments, so three forests, it was still running at the time. So we backed everything up and during the same night we actually restored it into Azure, which allowed teams from all over the world to be able to check the environment and check to see where we were at at that moment. So we could be able to work 24 seven with people in Germany, with people in France, with people in the US, everybody could work on the environment without having to ask for creds from the customer, without having to go through VPN or anything because it was on our infrastructure. So that was actually something that, you know, gave us some, I would say, you know, it saved us a lot of time. So you could lock down remote access to the actual production environment, but you've got an identical working yep. forensic environment. Yep. So speaking of forensics, can, can you, um, you share a little bit more what your experience has been in the incident response process around insurance? What should, what should a typical company expect to see happen when, you know, they, when they contact their cyber insurance, you know, and we had Tom and Ed earlier, when they contact their cyber insurance provider, what sort of guidance or instructions uh, should they expect to see and what kind of a lag in recovery, if any, should they expect? All right, so I'm a little jaded from uh, working in the in uh, with the insurance company, sometimes on cases. I'll preface it with that. Um, most insurance companies, they're, they are decent. Uh, they are there to protect you. You contact them when you have an incident they get the ball rolling. They give you, you know, guidance on here are some law firms to work with. Here are some response companies to work with. How they pick those magically out of the air, I don't really know. They've got relationships, obviously, there. Um, the, my biggest pain point with the insurance industry was they kept stepping in and trying to take over more and more of, well, you need to inform us before you do this. You need to inform us before you do that. Um, in ransom negotiations, I had to actually tell the insurance company before I said hello to the attacker. Literally, all I want to do is just say, hi, how do I get my files back? And if I would, with one of, these, one of the insurance companies, if I did that before I told them I was going to do that and I got approval, uh, they, would use, they could use that as a, claim, as a basis of not payment. Um, and then the other flip, same insurance provider, 
Um, the the difficulty with getting the right level of um, underwriter was uh, it was just amazing. Uh, so the demand started over a million dollars on the ransom. And when I went, so we, you know, said, hello, how do I get my files back? Um, what? How are you doing? Yeah, how are you doing? How, you have coffee this morning, whatnot. Uh, it's always pleasant conversations with these guys. Um, you know, you get to a point where you're going to ask for, okay, what's your demand? Usually you know, but, you know, you try lowballing them. Um, and before I can make an offer, of, again, I've got to get it approved by the insurance company. Um, the The first offer that I was ready to put out, which typically I'd go 50%, the underwriter came back and said, oh, that's above my pay grade. I can't authorize that. I'm like, why am I talking to you? <laughs> uh, which complicated matters more because they and their supervisor were in London. And because of that, now we've got a time delay. Um, attackers get really antsy once they start talking money and they want to get their money. And the more you delay the more they start freaking out and the more they start trying to release information. So it's, it can be really painful. Um, goes all the way back to the preparation. Talk to your insurance provider, get clear details on what they're expecting, what they want, and involve them when you do a, a, a test to walk through so you get an idea of what you're in for. So right, make sure their procedures are intimately connected with your recovery plan. Absolutely. And Sorry. And don't make it just an... Um, an individual within the organization who handles that insurance relationship. There's been many a times where I'd go into an uh, incident response case and it was like, oh, we got to talk to so-and-so in risk. I'm like, well, you're the security guy. Why don't you know? Well, we, that's not my responsibility. We got to talk to risk. And then getting a hold of risk, well, they're dealing with a whole bunch of other fires. You got to have more than one person who knows how to contact insurance. Well, let's turn this up yeah, for the audience. I'm sure we've got a bunch of whoa, we got a bunch of questions. Gil had his Gil had his hand up first, so. <laughs> so this might be more for Jeff. I'm not sure, but the uh, question is: when you're negotiating your uh, cyber insurance policy, is is there room in that process to lay out the ground rules for how you're going to actually handle the incident? Or is it the insurance company says, this is how we do it? And typically, that's typically, the insurance provider is going to give you the guidance on, this is how you do it, this is how, the number you call, this is the portal you log into. They dictate because it's going to vary in um, provider to provider. So is, is there any room to negotiate that to say, this is how we want to handle it? Mm, I'm going to say no, but I'm not an expert on that part. Yeah. So we've tried that multiple times. Read the fine print in your agreement because you're talking to an underwriter who's probably fresh out of college. We experienced this. Then you go to their boss, then you go to their boss, and you finally get a VP at a certain company in London who is the biggest broker in the world. <laughs> um, and you start negotiating what your agreement looks like, right? But if you read the fine print, it's not your underwriter that gave you the print. It's your carrier that gave it to you. And those details specifically say if you have any type of incidents based off of matrix that they gave you, you have to notify them in a certain window of time. And with that notification process, there's information you have to capture, right? My recommendation to everybody here is read that fine print. And I can't believe I'm saying this. Your second conversation should be with your chief legal. They have a lot of details and they were probably involved in the negotiation. And if there is an incident, your first phone call should not be to cyber insurance. It should be your, to your chief legal. Have them engage with cyber insurance or compliance, whoever else is involved. And then they're going to bring in their third-party counsel as well. 
Yep. Yeah, external counsel should be in every single conversation, and that is a privileged conversation that's not always on your side. So you have to be very careful who on your team is in that conversation. Don't bring in vendors, don't bring anybody else. It is whoever's in charge and all of the lawyers that we love so much all the time. Uh, so a question about eviction, right? Uh, Monty, I think you talked yesterday about eviction. If you don't know whether the adversary is still in your environment, does it change what you do trying to restore systems? Yeah. So that you will never have a guarantee that there's not a threat actor in your environment, specifically in major ransomware events, because there's multiple threat actors and adversaries, right? That's a game of cat and mouse of what systems do you keep isolated and protected, depending on the solutions that you have in place, versus uh, at the same time, who makes a decision to bring systems back online? It ain't cyber insurance, it's not the CISO, it's a risk-based question, right? You usually need consensus and you're gonna go to leadership and say, here's the information that we have based off the facts that we've collected and our confidence score of how secure our network is and we have the threat actors out of our network. And you know what? Let somebody else make that decision and figure out who should. Let me give you an example of a real um, incident that we worked through where um, the well a victim was a victim of not one uh, group, but of four parallel actors uh, active in their environment where you don't trust anything anymore. But you do have the need to bring your business uh, or to ensure that the business continues to run. So you need to also think about what can you do when. Uh, that business was brought back into being able to run again by a full force recovery of their Active Directory that we did um, restore in isolation, then completely hardened and brought back into the uh, live environment in parallel working with the EDR team to lock down other things and uh, throw out uh, uh, command and control systems, all basically in a surprise moment so that when you try to fix something like bit by bit by bit, the attackers would just be able to over... Uh, uh, overcome your actions at any time again. But if you do it like in isolation where you're sure that there is no intruder, then you have a chance. Then you have a chance to do real lockdown. Of course, you should do that before, yeah? But but some some don't, yeah? So in this case, we were able to bring this uh, uh, customer back. Well, actually back then it wasn't a customer, today it is. But do you stop then? Well, no. Um, you brought him back and where you're sort of in a semi-safe zone, the next step is replacement of all of their hardware, which takes time, yeah? So, um, but that is a second step. They were, they were able to keep their business running and survive, but um, it's not necessarily over just in the initial, um, let's say, recovery activity. And actually, so before we even talk about eviction, um, when you have initial access, so you just said that there were like four different you know, threat actors that were there, and you're running everywhere, you don't really know, forensics are not done, we don't know how hard we've been hit. And the question is, and this happened to one of my customers, where the threat actor was there for more than a year, so this was a petrochemical uh, you know, company, and uh, they have a lot of well, you know, research and whatever, and, and the, those guys were really, really deep in. And that also, and the preparedness comes to, what are your means of communication? 
because you've been breached or you see that something's happening, something wrong is happening, right? You're calling people, you're asking for help, but you're, you're going through Teams, right? You're, you're sending email on Office 365, whatever you have. And the thing is, we decided for this company that we knew that they got hit on-prem and they also had some local accounts that were synced to Azure and that had privileges in Azure. I'm not looking at I'm Pam, she's like, ooh, wincing. But that's the reality for most, I mean, many, many different customers. I'm talking Fortune 500 customers, so big companies. So we knew that Azure was pretty much compromised too, and we didn't know up to what extent. So we decided to not be able to talk through email or through Teams. And that's something that you have to get ready for because potentially that could happen. So anything that we would be planning, if you're, you know, if you created Teams, created whatever, and exchanging email, then potentially the, the, the bad guys are also looking at your plan. So you have to think outside of the box, but you have to think in advance. So secondary means of communication also have to be part of your emergency response and in that safe, not on the file share. Just to be clear, you're never going to say it's all clear in a major incident when there's ransomware threat actors. And I don't want to point any fingers at, or give anybody credit in the ransomware gang kind of area, but uh, as we just recently experienced, once ransomware and threat actors, ransomware gangs, malicious code, anything makes on your network, it's a major event, and they get to Active Directory, your backups and everything else, your firewalls, so on. Guaranteed to exfiltrate the data. That's kind of the holy grail of it all, right? And then two, when you are ready to say, hey, we're clear, we have the threat actors off our network, guess what? There's probably 50 other adversaries that are targeting you <laughs> because you're a wounded puppy, right? Yeah. And you're an easy target. All of the copycats know exactly what happened. So you're never going to really say, hey, we're clear, you know, we're good, the threat actors are out of our network because there's 49 other ones lined up right behind them. So you're just going to be on heightened awareness. I was actually going to add on to that one because uh, we went through this exercise. Uh, when I was stood up there earlier on today, it was a little sarcastic, but it was like the question was, how can I kill you? And that is something you should ask to every single business unit inside the organization because certain business units can last for longer. If you're at an end of quarter or end of year, finance has got to be up pretty quickly. If you're retail, end of month, if you're and depending upon those business units, that's where that communication and collaboration comes in. Perfect example, we have our experimental jet. It's sitting on the end of the runway. It's doing high-speed testing. My recovery period for that particular business unit has gone from one week to less than one day. When that plane's in the air, my recovery for that business unit is measured in minutes. So it's a situational dependent based off of every unit. And so this is the question for everybody here is, how many of you know the business units that you are protecting, how quickly you need to get them back up and running again? We do the same thing in healthcare, where our first, same exact thing, our first question when we do tabletops, I never go to a customer and say, show me your incident response plan. I can't wait to read 400 pages with Jeff. It's exciting, right? <laughs> it's how do I put you out of business in the next 24 hours? I go after your ED, your ICU, your NICU, patient intake, EMS transfer, and revenue cycle, right? And your tabletops should be based off that. Not, I'm going to go get my application back online. And outside of healthcare, same thing. Planes in the air, it's a matter of minutes. How do I put Boom Supersonic out of business? Yeah, and it's, it's going to be an internal fight because every unit is going to fight for they're the most important at this point in time. So you've, you've got to think about it in advance and you've got to have 
you know, even though, and like Chris said, it, it's going to change, but you got to have some ground rules on what is really important to the organization. Let's get, uh, we're obviously we're running much later because we wanted the insurance, a bunch of good questions and a bunch of good conversation here. Let's get maybe two more questions in and we figure it's probably worth running a little late for. Uh, hopefully you like this one. Um, Mandy and already, already Mandy and talked about how the democratization of crime has extended to angsty teenagers. It's not just organized crime or nation states, right? Anyone, sixteen-year-olds, Oxford, you know, lapsus. How do you deal with that when you actually need like a high school guidance counselor to do the negotiation with the threat actor? Because <laughs> they've been snubbed by their friend and they're only honing NVIDIA because they want to get back at being, you know, snubbed by one of their other bad guy friends. I've, I've run into a couple of those. Um, there are times where you just fall on the sword and you, you know, you play along with their game of like, they're the victim. They deserve it because they're so special. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, you're still trying to, you know, play mind games with them either to delay, to get extract information from them. So obviously one of the first things you want to do is, you obviously find out what the demand is, but you also got to find out, did they take information? What's that? Ice cream. Ice cream. I like ice cream. Um, <laughs> Video games. I'll challenge you. And if I win. And you got to give me my files back. Give me my files back. Yeah. Um, you've, you know, you've got you've to find out what they really truly have because a lot of them, they're, they're going to have bragging. They're going to say, oh, we've got five terabytes of your data. And it's like, okay, well, give me, give me a, a file listing and I'm going to pick a bunch of files that you can show me that you actually have. Well, I'm not going to give you the full list, but I'm going to give you this piece. And it's like, well, I could really use the full list because I'm going to pick randomly through it. And if you just give me a small list, it's not going to be as accurate. What if it doesn't have the data I care about? Um, so it's always, it, you always had to try playing mind games with them. Um, and there was just, I, there was one group and I remember, I can't remember which group it was, but they were just vicious. They, they didn't negotiate. If you got $5,000 off of the demand, it was like a good day. Um, so it really depends on who you're running into and you adapt as you find out more information from communicating with them as well as what, you know, the research that the forensics team is doing in the background or the IR team is doing in the background to build a profile on them so that you know how to communicate with them and not hurt their ego. <laughs> There's nobody in this room that needs to have a plan on how to negotiate with the threat actors. Just to be clear, the party council and cyber insurance has retainers for you know who to do that for you. Last question, nice and succinct, and we'll do this, and then we're going to do some quick closing remarks, and then we're off to Juniper. So. I think this is a very easy question, but I don't really know. I'm still new, very new to this. Um, we had a case in Baghdad where we recently had a big cyber attack to many of our government uh, institutions. And as a result, you know, they wanted to pay ransom. And the city of the general was talking about how they ended up recovering some of the money from Bitcoin. A similar incident happened where they did recover, but the cyber attack ended up coming back because they had a backdoor. So what's the percentage where that might actually happen? Where let's say I did pay, but they still came and attacked. I don't think anybody actually has that calculated or let alone would they ever share that information out. Yeah. Right? You don't want copycats. So when we do incident response, we do our forensics, close out, go put the claim in. 
nobody sees that information besides legal counsel. And if some people at the customer at the end of the day. And the insured, yeah. We'll never share that information out for a reason, right? We okay. also have some oh, cases, sorry. oh, just last thing. We also have some cases where you actually pay the ransom, but you never get the keys. So, so it's really when we say it depends, it's, it's really, really complicated. It's not an easy answer because the first thing I always say is I don't negotiate with terrorists. I mean, that is something that the president did say at the time, like quite a few times, and that is an American motto, right? You don't ne negotiate with terrorists. But sometimes you have to, when we're talking about colonial pipeline, you have to pay because otherwise millions or billions of people could die, you know, whatever. But... Even when you pay, you don't know if you're going to get your stuff back. Or you pay, you get your stuff back, but they might have you know, piggybacked something in the back. So they might come back and re-ransomware you or some, some other group can come. So it really depends. I mean, there is no perfect answer for that one. Perfect closer. Ben, ben gets the last word. Okay, great. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.